Summer as an adult is not the same thing as summer when you were a kid. As an adult, it's just another day you got to go to work. But as a kid, summer was a time of magic and possibilities. For me, the height of summer was going to the city park pool. Best 50 cents you could spend in the summer. 50 cents to get in, maybe another quarter to buy yourself a pretzel with mustard for lunch. And just swim and swim and swim and swim. And for me, you want to know what the best thing as a kid was about the pool? That wasn't the girls in bathing suits or anything like that. Thinking like 10 years old, girls still had cooties. They were gross back then. Now for me, the best part of the pool as a kid was the diving board. Love to go off the diving board. You go off the diving board and then you dive all the way down, all the way down. And you touch the bottom at the 10 foot end of the pool. And then you do a little spin turn underwater and you look up and you can see people's legs in the water and you can see the light shimmering on it and it's quiet and it's about the closest thing to perfection you can get at 10 years old. And then your lungs start burning and you got to swim back to the top. You swim over to the edge and you run around to, and get yelled at by the lifeguard for running. Walk! And you walk as fast as you can back to the diving board, back up and jump off again. Fun stuff. That wasn't the best. See, once in a while, when my parents had time, a little bit of free time, they'd take us over to Jackson Park Pool. That was all the way over in Vienna, forever away as a kid. I think it was only a couple of miles, but it was a long way away. Jackson Park Pool had something that the city park pool didn't have. It had high dives. Two of them. Kind of a middle one and then a really high one. And I waited and waited and waited to be 10 years old because that was the rule. You had to be 10 years old and you had to pass a swim test to go off the high dive. Man, I was so excited about that. I finally got there the one day that I was finally able to, 10 years old, I could go all the way off the highest high dive. I passed the little swim test with the lifeguard, go around and start climbing hundreds of stairs. This thing was like 50, 80, 100 feet tall. Okay, I was 10. It's probably only 18 feet tall, but it seemed to go forever. And I finally get up there at the top and you're so far up there and you're shivering from already being wet and you get ready. Screwed up my courage, got it all the way I could and leaped way up into the air and off and straight down into the water. I mean, I could have gone for the Olympics at that point in time in my life. It was beautiful. Splash, the cool water catches me. And I'm down. And see, Jackson Park's pool deep end wasn't just 10 feet. It was 14 feet. That's another one of me at that time. Swimming, swimming all the way down, past 8 feet, past 10 feet, past 12 feet. Finally, touching the bottom at 14 feet. My lungs are burning. And I did that kick turn to look up. And then it happened. A tickle in my nose, and I sneezed. Now, what's the next thing you do after you sneeze? (gasps) 
I can tell you that that was the scariest day in my life up to that point in time. There is no pain like drawing water into your lungs, a full breathful. I don't know if you're an expert in anatomy or if you've studied science in school when you were a kid, maybe, but human beings aren't meant to breathe water. Suddenly that peaceful moment that I'd had was gone. And I'm fighting to get back to the surface. People say time flies. Try not breathing. It slows way down. I have no idea how long it took me to get to the top. I have no idea how much I've overdramatized this in my memory. You tend to do that as a kid. But I know that finally at some point in time, I got back to the top and could. <gasps> and I was pulled to the edge, crying and sputtering and hacking and coughing. And the lifeguards made me get out of the pool and sit on the edge. But there was that moment of fear when I knew I couldn't save myself. I knew I needed something more than I'd ever needed anything in my entire life. I needed oxygen. And there was nothing I could do at the bottom of the pool to get it. Good morning, friends. Those joining us online, I'm Pastor Roger. And I promise you this applies as we talk about this series that we're going through right now called As You Are. From the idea of come as you are. From a vision of how church ought to be. You see, I have this idea that comes from attending an AA meeting when I was in school and seeing what that looked like. The idea that someone could come in to a meeting struggling with a big problem in their life. And the people there say, welcome friend. And the first time you're there, they give you a little chip. It says you've been sober for 24 hours. They reward you and say, good job, my friend. Welcome. And if you keep coming back and keep coming back, they give you more chips and more rewards and they help you on your walk, trying to fight away this addiction that you're dealing with. And you get a chip at two days and three days and five days and a week and a month and six months and a year. And each time you come back, they say, welcome, friend. And you can be sober for two decades and fall off the wagon. Something crashes in your life and you walk into an AA meeting again, stumbling in, still getting over last night's drunk, and they don't say, What's your problem? Why'd you fail? No, they say, welcome, friend. Here's your chip, 24 hours sober. I have this vision that church ought to be like that. That when someone comes in here, whatever they're dealing with, whatever they're struggling with, whatever they've come from, we say, welcome, friend. Welcome, traveler. And it's a home that maybe they've never been to, but this is a home that they can come to. And no matter what each and every one of us, each and every one of you are struggling with, what I'm struggling with when we walk in here to this group of people. Welcome, friend. 
We can struggle together. We can walk together. We can support each other as we try to go through this kind of thing. So we're doing this series, As You Are, welcome. Welcome home, friend. Whatever you're from, whatever you've been doing, wherever you've been, whatever's been done to you, welcome. As you are. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to get ready. You don't have to do anything different. Just walk in the door. And so we're looking at the 12 steps that they have in Alcoholics Anonymous or in Celebrate Recovery or any one of those other 12-step programs and looking at it through a biblical eye and understanding what that looks like and what this vision might look like as a church. And today, we're on the first step. The first step is admitting you have a problem, right? You've heard that cliche. The first step is admitting you have a problem. When I was at that swimming pool, I had a problem. I had a big problem. And I needed help. I could not get oxygen in myself. I needed help. I had a desperate need for air. The first step in Celebrate Recovery is to admit a need. The first step for AA is to recognize that. And the actual step goes like this. We admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. This is an important step in the walk of an addict. To admit that you don't have control. In fact, this is a key step in a walk for a person who maybe has depression or anxiety to admit you don't have control. In fact, this is the key step in the walk of anybody realizing their need for God is recognizing I'm not in control. I can't fix this myself. I don't have all the answers. I can't solve this. I'm not in control. This is a distinctive of Christianity, especially, is recognizing our inability to save ourselves. We can't do enough good works to save ourselves. We can't fix the problem of sin. Not a one of us can be perfect for God. The first step is admitting that you have a problem. The first step is recognizing that we're powerless over the issues in our lives. The first step is recognizing that our lives are unmanageable by ourselves. In Romans 3, it says, as it is written, there is no one who's righteous, no, not even one. There's no one who understands and no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. They have become altogether worthless. There's no one who does good. No, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. The mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, that is the law of God. It says, 
to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. There is no one who will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin and thus our need for God. You see, this is written by the Apostle Paul, Romans, a great book of theology. We actually went through it last year. Paul is writing to help us to understand our need for God. When he's talking about they, he's talking about us. He's talking about people before they know God. Without God, our lives are nothing. It's a mess. He quotes all through there of Psalms and Proverbs, saying this is what it looks like to be like this. To have mouths full of deceit. To run to violence and ruin. To not seek after God, not to seek after good. Because when we're without God, we go about our own busy lives, not realizing our desperate need for him. We're like that drowning man, but we just don't know it, at least at first. Why? Tells us in Jeremiah, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's in us. We confuse ourselves as to what our needs are. And we try to fill our needs with all kinds of things. You just look around our culture. We're entertaining ourselves to death. We desperately need something. And we're trying anything and everything else possible. We're like that drowning guy at the bottom of the pool who needs oxygen. But we're trying to drink a beer to get it. And it doesn't work that way. The word, the $10 theological term is depravity. That is the brokenness of humanity. The depth of it that we need God. And the real problem here is sin. That genetic brokenness that comes from all the way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve. But let's not just blame them. There's not a one of us that's sin free. We just got done reading that. And in our culture, when we use the word sin, there's a tendency to be about a list of things. Sin is this list of things that thou shalt not, the things you're not supposed to do. And it's easy to argue away what sin is if it's just a list, because I don't really believe that one's a sin, or I don't have that problem over there. And well, really, well, I'm a pretty good person most of the time. But when we recognize that sin is in our genetic nature, it's born into us, then things start to change. I mean, we have a preschool here on campus. The selfish, most selfish human being on earth is a little baby. They take and they take and they take and they take and they take. And the only thing they give you is poop. But let's be honest. It's not just babies that are like that sometimes. Please don't point fingers. And it doesn't get any better. Have you dealt with toddlers before? For toddlers, everything's selfish. It's mine. If you've got it, it's mine. If I've got it, it's mine. If I can see it, it's mine. If I played with it yesterday and now you want it, it's mine. Selfishness. It's born into us. That's all part of that beginning of original sin, the sin that's within us and continues. 
And it's a point of theology for Christians to recognize that our brokenness, our sin, the things about us that make us unwhole and unworthy of God, not perfect. It's all in us already. It's a heart rebellion against God that we all have. We want to be in control of our lives. We don't want anybody else to control it. Until we recognize that, until we can admit that first step that we are not in control, really. We can't deal with the sin in our lives and we can't be saved. And we can try really, really hard. We could try to be perfect. We all know that person. Everything they do has to be perfect. Can I tell you? That person is suffering in the depths of sin. When you look at somebody and go, I wish I had a life like them. Let me tell you, that person is suffering in the depths of sin. When you look at your own life and you realize, man, I'm struggling and I need help. And I can't white knuckle it enough. I can't try hard enough. I can't do enough good deeds to make it all better. There comes a moment when we recognize we need God. Maybe your struggle is alcohol. Maybe you're the one who walks into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's other stuff in your life like depression or anxiety. Maybe it's pride. That's a good one. We have a really good job with that in our culture. Maybe it's greed. Ooh, another one. There's so many things that the original sin that's in us comes out as in our life. Until we recognize that this is the problem. It doesn't matter how, we good, how good we keep a list, a checklist of what's right and wrong. We'll never be able to deal with it. We have no control over these things. There's a song from my high school era with apologies by Guns N' Roses. And Axl Rose, the lead singer, sings about his struggle with heroin. And he says, I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it. So a little got more and more. I just try keep trying to get a little better, just a little better than before. Now take heroin out of that mix. Does that sound familiar? I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it. So a little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little bit better, a little better than before. Whatever our struggle is, we try to control it and we just take a little bit. We do a little bit more. Maybe it's okay. We give ourselves permission. But it's not until we admit that we have a problem. We recognize that key of Christianity that we are broken at the core. That's a part of being human being. Once we could admit that, then healing can begin. Like the drowning guy at the bottom of the pool, we need help. Help to get the one thing we need, oxygen in that case. The one thing we need is salvation. Salvation from our sin. And that's the practical thing of all of this is that once you and I can admit that we need desperately a solution to this problem in our lives then we can help others recognize their need and come to him too. But only if we are like that, that welcoming, humble family, group of people who says, 
Hey, welcome. Let's walk together. When you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, there's a whole process. In fact, it's not entirely unlike church. They've got kind of got their things and everybody kind of knows the routine of what's going on. There's a part in the meeting where you introduce yourself. You stand up and say, hi, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody says, hi, John. All welcoming and friendly and happy. And it doesn't matter if it's your first time or your 10th time or your 100th time. And it doesn't matter if you failed and fell off the wagon yesterday. When you come into that meeting, you say, hi, I'm John. And they all say, hi. And the key thing is you admit you can be 25, 30, 50 years sober. And you stand up and still say, hi, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. Christian. Friend, when you come into this place, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years or 70 years. You are still a sinner in need of a Savior who will cover your sin so that when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your sin. He sees you through the veil of Christ's righteousness. When you walk in, you step up and you say, hi, my name's Roger and I'm a sinner. And I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. And I don't know what to do with my life sometimes. But I know I need God. Hi, my name's Roger. And I'm a sinner. And then you all go, Hi, Roger! This helps us move out of the seat of judgment. My job is not to look into your life and point a finger. And my job as a pastor might be to say, hey, I see you're struggling with this. How can I help? Hey, it appears to me that you're fighting a demon in your life. How can I walk with you? You see, when we admit, stand up and admit, I'm a sinner. I confess that to you. Now I'm not God. I know I need God. And now I can go, hey, I need God. I see you need God too. How about we start walking that way towards him? And just like an alcoholic walks into an AA meeting, perhaps stumbling, still washing off that last drunk this last night. Maybe he's got torn, dirty clothes, vomit on them from lying in his own filth. He's welcomed into that meeting. You can walk in these doors here and be welcomed in here no matter what you look like. That's the vision of what church ought to be. You walk in here and you don't have to clean yourself up. In fact, you can stumble in fresh off of whatever bender you've been dealing with in life. No suits required. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to change yourself up. There's no judgment for that in here. Only walking together towards finding a solution and recognizing that all of us need God desperately and we can't do it alone. Friends, Come as you 